Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Six parts ago in Crime and Punishment, there was a crime. Now let's talk about some punishment in the epilogue, maybe. It's a large task, but thankfully joining us for this wrap-up is Dr. Kate Holland. Dr. Kate Holland is an associate professor of Russian literature at the University of Toronto, as well as the president of the North American Dostoevsky Society. Her research includes the historical, cultural, and institutional context of the 19th century Russian novel. Among a great deal of other work, Dr. Holland has also co-edited a Dostoevsky companion, Text in Context with Connor Doak, and friend of the podcast, Catherine Bowers, as well as Dostoevsky at 200, the novel in modernity, also with Dr. Bowers. In Dostoevsky at 200, which is open access and linked in the show notes, thanks Cameron, uh, Dr. Holland contributed the chapter, The Poetics of the Slap, Dostoevsky's Disintegrating Dual Plot. Dr. Holland and Bowers are working on Digital Dostoevsky, a computational text analysis project on Dostoevsky's novels. So, Suffice to say, plenty of qualifications to be joining us who have not done nearly as much work as on Dostoevsky <laughs> on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. If you have any yeah, plugs or anything that you want to discuss, now is, now is your time. <laughs> yeah, so there were just a couple of things that I wanted to mention since we're talking about today about the epilogue to crime and punishment. Um, there's actually a um, Canadian Slavonic Papers special issue on the, the um, epilogue to crime and punishment from June 2020 uh, with three excellent articles by um, myself and uh, Katya Bowers and also Eric. Rick Nyman and an epilogue to that um, issue by Robin Foyer Miller. Um, so that's if you're if you're interested in reading further, that could be a good place. And I also wanted to mention a couple of um, books that came out on crime and punishment in the last month or two. Um, a particularly great one is. Um, by the late Deborah Martinson, who was um, a professor at Columbia um, and also a past president of the North American and International Dostoevsky Societies, um, died sadly in December. Um, but she's got out a wonderful new uh, reader's guide to crime and punishment, which is out with Academic Studies Press. It's a very short volume, comes in at like 113 pages, um, but just a really, really um, smart and um, just even though it's even though it's small, it's a really, really brilliant um, analysis of the novel that I think will be helpful to both to um, uh, students and any readers of Crime and Punishment. And then the other volume is perhaps more interesting to those who teach um, the novel, uh, which is that the Modern Languages Association, MLA, has um, a set of um, uh, a series called Approaches to Teaching, um, and there's one on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, edited by Michael Katz and Alex Burry, uh, which also just came out recently. So um, your listeners might want to take a look at those uh, volumes as well. Definitely. I've had my eye on that last one. I saw it coming out and I was like, I wish it came out just like a month earlier for when yeah. we were doing the series. But yeah. yeah, but definitely check it out for sure. 
Yeah, I remember Matt sending this that that book to me. He's like, oh, this would be perfect. And then like a few texts later, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Not quite out yet. Not out yet. But yes, I'll, I'll, we'll go ahead and include links to all those things in the show notes, either directly to uh, the article or to places you can acquire those books, because I think they'd be great. Like you said, great for people to pick up if they're really interested in this topic. Plus 130 pages. That's pretty good. That's pretty <laughs> yeah. good. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, there is um, also if people are interested. Um, recently, there's an event that the was organised by the North American Dostoevsky Society together with the Harriman Institute at Columbia, um, and the Academic Studies Press, which was kind of a launch for that book, which is available mm -hmm. on our YouTube um, site on the North American Dostoevsky YouTube. So people might want to check that out too. Well, we'll send Cameron digging for that. Um, okay, that way he can he can provide those links. Sounds good. All right. Well, now that we now that we got all that other Dostoevsky stuff out of the way, we can get to the important question of the day. <laughs> what what are you drinking on this podcast? I'm drinking a cocktail, a tiki cocktail. It's called Jungle Bird. Um, it's a nice uh, orange color uh, with rum in it and a couple of other ingredients. It looks nice. Sounds nice. Yeah. Not very crime and punishment, but, you know, tastes good. Well, in a way, it could be. Uh, let me get back to that in a second because okay. I have a new segment for the just this part of the podcast. W what are you drinking, Cameron? Or are you? <laughs> I I am unfortunately not today. I'm technically still at work, uh, so I got to clock back in after this. And I don't think my boss will be really happy if I come back tipsy. So I have got a San Pellegrino for now. Okay, um, I'll allow it. <laughs> I'll allow it, but I. I I will request Cameron is heckled on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my my contract at the government may not they may not be super happy about that one. They may take some some action on that. <laughs> How about you, Matt? I, I'm drinking a, a a bullet bourbon. Uh, the only drink my dog will let me have in peace because he doesn't like the smell of it, so he stays away from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So speaking of new segments for the podcast, I was. Uh, scrolling through Reddit before this, um, that's because that's where I, that's where you can find all the good Russian literature uh, things. And I saw, I won't name them by name. I'll do an abridged version of the worst take on the epilogue I've seen so far. Ah, so we really do get a happy ending after all. The court was really lenient on him, and life in prison doesn't sound all that bad, really. <laughs> I digress. We can talk about if that's a bad take. I contend life in prison sounds bad, and also. That's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but well, we can talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, before we get there, let's do a quick recap. Please. And uh, for those of you who are reading along, you may already know that this is only like 20 or 30 pages. So thankfully, you're going to be spared 40 minutes of me just lecturing at you about what happened. Or we'll see. I don't know. I've got, I've got some kind of a talent for drawing things out. Uh, so let's talk briefly about what happens in the epilogue. So... Obviously, last time we ended on the Raskolnikov finally admitting to our, our friend, the explosive lieutenant, that he had, in fact, committed the crime. So we uh, open up. On the banks of a broad, solitary river stands a town, one of the administrative centers of Russia. In the town, there is a fortress, and in the fortress, there is a prison. In the prison, the second-class convict, Rodion Raskolnikov, has been confined for nine months. Uh, so we're learn we learn about the events of Raskolnikov's trial following this, and this chapter is a little bit out of order we'll be jumping around back and forth a bit um it's noted that during his trial he was unusually forthright pretty much just laying out exactly what he did uh where the money is where everything where everything was left why he did it and it's 
basically to the disbelief of those at the trial. They really are not sure how to deal with him. Um, some of them even trying to say, oh, no, this man's, you know, insane. He's not mentally competent for this. Uh, but he seems quite logical to everyone else and is just like, no, this is really, this is why I did it. I, I wanted to prove this idea. And of course, it's interesting that, you know, all the complicated motives that we've seen throughout building throughout the novel, those are gone, right? And in the court case, it's just this very straightforward, you know, this was it. This is why I did it. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And now, now everyone's like, I, we don't know what to do with this. We thought we, we had many ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at the same time as he's going through this trial, Pulcheria's mother has taken ill. Um, you might recall in the last part that when he went to tell her that he was going away, she almost didn't seem to understand and kept asking him, oh, but you'll be back, right? Be back tomorrow or the next day and you'll be around. And he leaves telling her simultaneously, I'm going to be gone for a long time, but also, yes, mother, I'll, be, I'll return soon. Uh, and Pulcheria seems to being in the impression that uh, Raskolnikov is under uh, is out in Siberia for some kind of business venture, and uh, to the extent that she is even when going outside with with Dunya, um, telling people about her son Raskolnikov and his business dealings, uh, you know, in the east, with which Dunya is quite concerned that someone's going to be like, "Oh, you mean Raskolnikov, the guy who was sent to Siberia for axe murder?" Um, thankfully for her, no one no one says that. Although Dunya does kind of suspect that Pulcheria knows a lot more than, than she maybe lets on. We learn more about Raskolnikov's sentencing, and, um, it, and he, he's eventually, I believe, sent to Siberia about five months after his confession. And in the days before, um, Raskolnikov is quite concerned with his mother, often asking about her health. Um, and at the same time, um, Raskol, uh, Razumikin and Dunya are making plans to follow Raskolnikov to Siberia. Uh, Razumikin is, has returned to school to finish up his education. They received uh, some amount of money, so they're planning to use that to, to try to build that. And in amidst all that, Raskolnikov is set to, sent to Siberia, where uh, Sonia also follows him. Uh, several months after that time, Razumikin and Dunya are also married, which is as you might understand, a relatively somber affair. Interestingly, Porfiry and Zosimov are both invited. Actually, this is something I should double back to you real quickly. It's also noted that Porfiry kept his promise that he didn't tell the, the courts about basically guessing and, and somewhat forcing Raskolnikov to confess, which also helped to a relative leniency in his, in his crime, in addition to him being forthright and telling everyone where the money is and then finding that the money was still there. So at the, at the fever pitch of all of this and in her sickness, Pulcheria finally dies. It's hard to, for, for Dunya to convey this to Sonia and Raskolnikov, because at that, at that point, Sonia's letters are, are quite cut and dry, basically describing just what's happening, and it's hard to get a lot of knowledge about what's happening uh, out there, but they do kind of get the sense that things are not going super well, and eventually their fears are kind of confirmed when Sonia confirms to them that, that Raskolnikov is really not well-liked uh, by the other prisoners, although she herself has become very well-liked and, and kind of a feature, uh, an important person in the town. And we end this chapter learning that Raskolnikov has fallen quite ill. Chapter 2, we rejoin Raskolnikov, and it's really fitting that rejoining him, we go from a more general overview of what's happening to a lot of interrogation. <laughs> of of his circumstances and what's going on in, in the recent events. Um, Raskolnikov, while sick, notes it, that it's not it's not really like illness per se that's that's taken him down. It's really his own kind of sense of jumbled feeling towards himself. Um, it, it's it's shame in a sense, and it's it said it's written. It was not his shaven head and his fetters he was ashamed of. His pride had been stung to the quick. It was wounded pride that had made him ill. How, how happy he would have been if he could have blamed himself. He could have borne anything then, even shame and disgrace. But he judged himself severely, and his exasperated conscience found no particularly terrible fault in his past, except 
a simple blunder which might happen to anyone. Now, and I think there the importance, the, the difference between feeling guilt and feeling shame is really key here, right? And actually that um, Deborah Martinson in her reader's guide, she she's written a lot about shame and she sees kind of the, sh you know, shame is kind of all about yourself, right? There's there's, there's sort of, um, there's no, in a, in a way, reflection uh, as part of shame, right? Whereas, um, and, and we should probably talk about guilt later on, but, um, but shame really here dominates right um guilt is still to come yes exactly let's, let's we'll put a flag in that because there's a, a lot to discuss there yeah because he's still thinking a lot about his theory and he's still thinking that existence mere existence that's written is too little and it's agonizing him like this shame of not not failing particularly that that caused what he's come to but rather a blunder just something that just happened to him it was not it wasn't really even a, a fault of it well, it was it kind of was his fault but that's not how he's thinking about it <laughs> He's thinking that this could have happened to anyone. That's the terrible thing, that this, the, my failure in this sort of great man theory is just that there was something out of my control. And he's wondering through this, you know, why he didn't kill himself like Svidrigailov. And through it all, the other prisoners really hate him, even though there are other prisoners, um, some, some Polish prisoners, some um, Russian prisoners who were seminarians or others who were kind of involved in, in political uh uh, attempts at political upheavals who kind of look down at the general population uh, even despite all those he is uniquely disliked <laughs> and even attacked by by people claiming him to be an infidel um in in brutally beaten you're getting a sense of why when when matt was bringing up earlier about uh, <laughs> conditions why maybe it's not it's not 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 so bad maybe overselling <laughs> raskolnikov's experiences um and at, at some point he takes ill and he has a dream. And sorry, this is going to be a little bit longer, but I'm going to read. Um, uh, I'm going to read parts of this dream because there is a there's a lot to look at here. And if you have not read, if you have not read all all of Crime and Punishment, first of all, we, we highly recommend you do. But also, if you're coming to this part, you should definitely read. I mean, if you haven't read the rest of Crime and Punishment, I can't in good com conscience tell you read the epilogue. But this part, I think you'll get a lot more out of it if you've read the epilogue because there's a lot. This is like a very dense section of ideas. So Raskolnikov dreams that the whole world was condemned to a terrible new strange plague. All were to be destroyed except a few chosen. Some new sorts of microbes were attacking the bodies of men, but these microbes were, at what, were endowed with intelligence and will. Men attacked by them became at once mad and furious, but never had men considered themselves so intellectual and so completely in possession of the truth as those suffering. Never had they considered their decisions, their scientific conclusions, their moral convictions so infallible. Whole villages, whole towns, and peoples went mad from the infection. All were excited and did not understand each other. Each thought that he alone had the truth and was wretched looking at the others, beat himself on the breast, wept, and wrung his hands. They did not know how to judge and could not agree what to consider evil and what good. They did not know whom to blame, whom to justify. The most ordinary trades were abandoned because everyone proposed his own ideas, his own improvements, and they could not agree. Only a few men could be saved in the whole world. So that's a slightly abridged version of the dream, but wakes up and <laughs> thinks, obviously, quite a terrible dream. Through this all, Sonia is obviously stuck by him. Raskolnikov is very dismissive of Sonia, really dismissive of someone who has followed him to Siberia. Uh, and by all accounts, has done quite well for herself. Um, uh, up to when Sonia suddenly stops visiting him and he becomes suddenly very worried until he finally gets... A letter saying that she's fallen sick but still is basically trying to putting despite being ill herself after coming to siberia and establishing a whole life being like okay i hope you're okay and at that point his he kind of has some acknowledgement that 
well, not specific acknowledgement. He's just as like his heart's beating as he's reading reading that letter. One day, he and some other convicts are out at the riverbank to work, and while he's while Raskolnikov is just sitting there and looking at the river, uh, Sonia comes up to him and she gives him her hand, uh, somewhat tentatively, as he sometimes as if she wonders if he's going to reject it. Um, and all at once, he suddenly throws himself at her feet, um, and and he throws himself at his feet a lot at a lot of points points in this book um and sonia kind of has this realization that truly or at least she be- thinks okay truly he must love me and they're they're unable to think uh pale and thin and sick faces uh they were bright all at the same time at the dawn of a new future of a full resurrection into a new life um and following that raskolnikov has the sense that his his agonies and his troubles are all of the past I think it's also worth pointing out here that this is taking place in Holy Week, right? So this is, and actually, interestingly, I'm not sure whether you planned this, but um, it's actually Holy Week now. So it's exactly this time of year, right? On uh, We're recording this yeah. on the Saturday before Easter. And so this is kind of the time, right, when this is all taking place. Yeah, it didn't. It, we didn't plan that, but this is a really a nice, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a nice coincidence. And uh, fitting fitting with the uh, you know the themes of Holy Week and the themes of resurrection, everything, even his crime, his sentence and imprisonment, seemed to him now, in the first rush of feeling, an external strange fact with which he had no concern. He could not think of long f- of anything, and he could not have analyzed anything consciously. He was simply feeling. Life had stepped into the place into the place of theory, and something quite different would work itself out in his mind. And he takes up the copy of the New Testament under his pillow, which Sonia, despite being very religious, has never forced upon him until he asked for it, and thinks upon the story of Lazarus, which she read to him uh, before he confessed his uh, murder to her. Sonia, too, is feeling quite ill, and despite feeling quite ill, she's so happy that she's almost afraid of that happiness. And uh, at this point, um, the narrator says, this is the beginning of a new story, one of gradual renewal of a man. Um, his gradual regeneration of his passing from one world into another, of his initiation into a new unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story, but our present story has ended. And with that, we leave Crime and Punishment, one of the one of the darkest parts, followed by one of the most kind of not light almost parts, as as light as you get in Dostoevsky. <laughs> so it's interesting that you missed out my favorite ambiguous moment at the very end of the um, of the epilogue, um, which is the penultimate paragraph right before the last. Mm-hmm. So you talked about the new story beginning, um, but in that penultimate paragraph, the last sentence is he didn't even know that his new life was not being given to him for free, that it would still cost him dear, that it would have to be paid for with a great future deed. So that is an interesting moment that sort of, um, well, I think the, the epilogue, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is kind of dotted with all kinds of intriguing um, moments that suggest that all is perhaps not quite as it seems. Mm. Yes, yes, that that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. There is... <laughs> In addition to again hearkening back to Matt's original uh, thought on some on some some Reddit takes on this uh, on this book, some some little pinpricks here in the epilogue. <laughs> Just perhaps not a text for hot takes, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think probably not. <laughs> no, um, as as we know well from Anna Karenina, all of light is made up of light and shadow. So <laughs> <laughs> please make it stop. <laughs> um so yeah the epilogue wow um i i don't even know where to start with this kate uh, where would you i uh, like if you were approached 
like talking i mean we are approaching talking about this like, where, where do we start do you think? so i mean we could start by talking about the controversy about the epilogue right so um whenever i teach this you know there's always we always get into it with the epilogue right do does dostoevsky prepare for the epilogue do people buy raskolnikov's final conversion or do they not Right. That's the that's the big question um, that's been debated really since the novel was published. Um, so does Dostoevsky prepare the way for the epilogue or is it something that just comes kind of out of nowhere? Right. So um, and I think there, there's various um, answers to whether he to how he prepares the way. I, I personally think that he does and that the epilogue is not just the sort of Bakhtin was not a big fan of the epilogue. Right. He sees it as kind of tacked on somehow that, you know, um, the great dialogic Dostoevsky kind of becomes monologic in the epilogue, which I absolutely disagree with him about. Um, in fact, I think that the epilogue is as dialogic as anywhere. And any other part of the novel. Um, but one interesting um, one interesting thing that happens as we move towards the epilogue is that the narrator begins to take on um, begins to take on a new temporal perspective, right? So what he begins to do, and actually I wanted to point to a section um, at the beginning of um, part six. For Raskolnikov, a strange time had begun. It was as if a fog had suddenly descended, trapping him in hopeless, oppressive isolation. Recalling this time much later, he surmised that he'd experienced now and then a dimming of his consciousness and that this had continued with a few intervals right up until the final catastrophe. So that... Um, that way in which the narrator kind of moves to the kind of successful conclusion, right? The final catastrophe, the moment at which Raskolnikov has presumably finally been converted, right? Or has finally confessed, right? That, that kind of end point, as we move towards the end of the novel, that endpoint becomes more palpable and it becomes something that, in, so so in a sense, Dostoevsky kind of is preparing the way um, on the level of the, in the narrative perspective there, I think. I feel like there should have been less time between my sequential reads so I could have read it backwards and looked for these things. Yes, yes. I didn't do that. <laughs> but thank you for pointing this out because... This is interesting. And then the other, the other is, of course, that or one very important point that I already sort of began to make is that the epilogue is not a straightforward conversion story, right? First of all, um, as you narrated, right, as you as you kind of told the um, the lead up, it's evident that in fact most of the epilogue, Raskolnikov's in exactly the same state as he was for most of the novel, right? The conversion only happens at the very end, um, and it's interesting, of course, that the that the punishment is the which is the epilogue right uh, uses up such a small amount of space compared to the crime right that they're they're kind of uh, equivalent to one another these two sections um in terms of sort of semantically equivalent in the title and yet they are also you know just so much the crime so far overbalances the punishment right in terms of number of pages yeah so so there's just so many ways in which i think that um the idea that Dostoevsky somehow is um, letting everyone down at the end just doesn't ring true to me. Yeah, that was something when I was preparing for this. There was, oh gosh, a paper which I read like half a week ago, and I do not remember who wrote it, unfortunately, which was a defense of the epilogue. And I will, I will link it once. Oh, yeah. 
Matuel, David Matuel, I think his name is. Yeah, that's it. Yes. And I, I when I came into it, I, I didn't initially have that thought. And I was like, the epilogue needs defending. And that, that it is an interesting thought. I can see where maybe if you have like, um, if you go into it, and you maybe haven't been thinking too much about some of the particulars of this novel, and it made me think of another piece. And I, I, so I honestly, we've, over the weeks, we've read so many papers for this. I do not remember if this is something that was from Dostoevsky or for 200 or something else, but it was a paper, which again, I will link in the show notes about Dostoevsky's relationship to kind of this idea of like averages. In, oh, yeah. Uh, of like it, Greta Matznador and like the, the idea of the uh, the poetics of probability, right? That, that was yes, in, that's yeah, in Dostoevsky at 200. Okay, perfect. Yes. Glad that, that that was an accurate remembrance of that. But Matt Snurgore pointed out that in some ways, just, just keep doing this is the biggest problem with this podcast is confusing Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Raskolnikov in many ways is kind of like a rejection of like that averages because in many ways he is not himself an average person like for being, you know, a young 23 year old dude who um, has this idea that if I, I can commit great crimes and become a, a great man of history, in many ways, he you know, that that is an average. That's like a very average yeah. thing for like <laughs> 23 yeah. year olds to, yeah, yeah. to be. But in many ways, um, Raskolnikov is not the average of that. He shows great amounts of empathy and disregard for himself and giving away money to to people, to um, people he finds on the street, to helping um, that young girl uh, with the with the with the man who's following her, with giving all of his mother's money to Katerina Ivanovna when um, Marmeladov dies for the funeral. And in like this this ending feels very like an embrace of that rather than rather than just like a sudden reversal yeah if you're paying attention it feels right yeah in that same passage that you pointed out actually in the beginning of part six it says he learned a great deal about himself from what other people told him and then in the epilogue you have this whole scene during the trial where we are learning as well about him from other people what he's done that's actually good right um and not something uh a napoleon would probably do (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the trial is also interesting, right? That um, here you get also a foreshadowing of Dostoevsky's um, uh, criticisms of trial by jury, right? And of the whole sort of um, criminal justice system that, of course, we're going to get, um, uh, that we get uh, fully expressed in the Brothers Karamazov, right, later on um, with the sort of whole. Um, a section of that novel as a as a sort of parody of of how trials took place in the 1870s and of course 1864 is a key year because that's the the year of the um codification of the new um legal system right the new judicial system and the introduction of trial by jury um so the the trial takes place right and with its sort of its um um socially and legally sanctioned authority there um of course the story that the trial that emerges from the trial bears no resemblance to the story of the novel and um the motives that raskolnikov in fact um had for the crime right so the trial is sort of a um a red herring if you like right yeah Lot to be said there. I, I also wanted to uh, not to shift the topic, but there's like I, I want to talk about the dream yeah. a little bit more because yeah. honestly, the dream is something that kind of confuses me in a way. Looking at yep. it, that it feels like, especially the things that stand out to me are like, okay, we we're get we're talking about this idea of 
everyone bringing on they're uh, coming to their own rational ideas of rightness and, and inability to connect with other people but they're still like those the, the thing that stands out to me is those few men that could be saved who recreate the world anew and there's no description of who they are what that means other than other than just that they aren't like the rest this is perfect so um what's going on here is this is a recapitulation of raskolnikov's idea right of course so of course um the you know raskolnikov is of course one of the one of the people who has the ideological virus right but at the same time what's happening here is quite interesting because there's a shift and this actually is going to bring us to that great deed um paragraph towards the end of the novel that that um, penultimate paragraph um that in fact, maybe the alternative to Raskolnikov's great man theory is not its entire rejection, but rather, do you remember, um, so so one of the great um, aspects of the last couple of parts of the novel, and especially part six that you talked about in your last podcast, is the... Um, um, the sort of competition between the vision of punishment and redemption, which Sonia embraces, right, for him, which Sonia embraces, and which and that which Porfiry embraces, right. And in fact, Porfiry, I think, towards the end of the novel, emerges as the sort of so so in a sense, these various characters, so Porfiry and Sonia and Svidrigailov, to some extent, they all become kind of plotters of Raskolnikov's fate, right. So Svidrigailov sort of has the he represents the path to suicide sonia represents the sort of straightforward christian moral paradigm right that he will that he will confess that his crime will be expiated and that he will be redeemed and then porfiry represents something else because of course porfiry is a christian porfiry wants raskolnikov to be punished he's a lawyer right he's he's a detective he's within the system but at the same time he recognizes the brilliance of raskolnikov he recognizes the possibility of some kind of a great um, future for Raskolnikov. And what's interesting, there's another section I wanted to point out, which is the conversation um, between um, Porfiry and Raskolnikov in part six, um, when Porfiry has already um, acknowledged um, that, he, that he knows that Raskolnikov is guilty. And they're talking about punishment. Um, and he's saying about how you need to suffer, right? The need to suffer. But then he says, um, had you gone and come up with some other theory, you might have gone and done something a billion times more ghastly. Perhaps it's God we should be thanking. God might just be saving you for something. How can you know? So have a great heart and a bit less fear. What? Are you shying away from the great duty ahead of you? Right? So the idea there is that Porfiry seems to be suggesting actually not the rejection uh, entirely of Raskolnikov's great man idea, but rather that maybe God has something planned for Raskolnikov. You know, maybe there is this potentiality in Raskolnikov that can somehow still be used, right? And these, and so this kind of, mar this sort of um, um, resurrectability, if you like, that you were talking about before, right? All the good deeds that he does for, for these um the sort of um, um, the poor of St. Petersburg, you know, there is something in Raskolnikov that Porfiry seems to recognize. And so rather than needing to utterly prostrate himself um, as so to become as meek as Sonia, right, that he can somehow retain his pride. And so in that dream, what you get is a kind of a, tra a, a sort of pivot from Raskolnikov's vision to Porfiry's vision, right, that, that Raskolnikov can in the end be one of the few who don't have 
have the virus, that he can be one of the chosen who emerge from this kind of um, from this um, ideological nightmare unscathed, if you like, right? So the dream also kind of prepares the way for another possible reading of the epilogue that sees uh, Raskolnikov not as Sonia would have him, right? As as someone who's emptied of all his like great man fantasies and just filled with, you know, humility and Christian compassion, but rather someone who could in fact be some kind of hero in this new kind of future that might lie ahead of him after Siberia. It sounds kind of similar. I mean, in reading Messner Gore's argument that in, in many ways this novel, Dostoevsky is not just like denouncing and trouncing on the ideas of rationality around the time, but rather advocating for like a more nuanced take on the topic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that Porfiry's vision of what Raskolnikov could be, you know, is in many ways more, I hate the word relatable, but, you know, in, mm. in a way, Porfiry's vision of a of a future for a radical student is more, you know, feasible in a sense, right? That he should contribute to some kind of, you know, future society rather than, you know, becoming like Sonia and, you know, just sort of prostrating himself before the world, right? Okay, that makes sense. Oh, yet all the same, when he wakes up, he kind of considers it. Well, what's the word he uh, he thinks of it? He was he was worried that it would, it would haunt his it was his memory senselessly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it, as as always, right? The dreams are they they sort of represent the the kind of um, psychological undercurrents or deep structures of the novel, right? But he's not quite there yet, right? And in fact, he's not really there at the end of the novel. Um, as Dostoevsky often does, he's kind of pointing off into some future moment, right? But it's interesting, I think, the, the other moment that you mentioned um, in your synopsis that I think is also interesting is when he's uh, is in the second part, right? He still is trying trapped in his kind of existential dead end, right, of, um, you know, he's not really, like, he's ashamed, but he's not really feeling guilty. And he's remembering how he, um, why didn't he commit suicide, he's asking himself, right? Why is, why is he still here? For what reason? And what he's looking for, like, he needs some, he needs some greater vision, this this idea of a kind of a meaningless delirium, right? That he um, uh, sh surely there sh should be something more, right? What he's looking for is something more. So that that Dostoevsky still seems to be suggesting that you know he's kind of barking up the wrong tree. So the conversion moment somehow does need to happen. Um, another interesting oh one other thing I forgot to mention is that. Um, we should definitely also think about the autobiographical elements of this epilogue as well, right? Because, of course, Dostoevsky himself um, had spent time as a convict in Siberia. And in fact, that moment when he looks across the river at the, nomad, the nomads on the other side of the river, the river is the Irtish, and it's actually mentioned in um, Notes from the House of the Dead, Dostoevsky's fictionalized memoir about his time in Siberia. That passage also appears there as um, Garyanchikov, who's kind of Dostoevsky's alter ego there, also looks across the river at the nomads and sees them representing some kind of a timeless, um, ahistorical vision, right? Some kind of a moment before the fall. Um, and, and again, Dostoevsky always has this fantasy about some kind of a time before history. 
you know, where everything is more straightforward, right? Um, yeah. So you see that there too, I think. Um, and so that that landscape is very interesting as a, um, the Siberian landscape is um, obviously so different from St. Petersburg as a kind of space for regeneration and, and redemption, right? That it seems to. But at the same time, of course, especially in the current situation, um, a lot of us are beginning to read Russian novels now um, with a lot more sensitivity towards questions of, of imperial expansion and, you know, thinking about decolonizing the field. And of course, the idea that the nomads have no history somehow, right? Mm. And only Raskolnikov as a Russian has some kind of history, right? Is obviously a very uh, questionable um, claim, right? And one which needs to be unpacked. Um, yeah, I, I guess that, that is something that, to, to your point about that, of, of like an, an evolution of this notion of, of one's relationship to the world where it's like not an entire rejection of this so-called great man idea, but like an evolution of it. Yeah. It's impossible to get away from that. Like that is still associated with, uh, with the Napoleons, maybe a more kinder, sensitive Napoleon, whatever that means. Exactly. But still a Napoleon. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's where we really get to that penultimate paragraph, right? Um, so um, he's using the word. So when he says he didn't even know that his new life was not being given to him for free, that it would still cost him dear, that it would have to be paid for with a great future deed. He uses the word podvig, right, which is the word that's associated often with um, a Russian folk hero, right, the bogatir, the like epic hero of Russian epic, of Slavic folk epic. And so that, and that word is also used by Porfiry earlier on in the novel to be as something, you know, so, and that kind of reconstructs conceives um, Raskolnikov as some kind of almost like epic hero who has failed in the sort of nature of what he did, but that still has some kind of um, sort of future destiny that somehow he needs to be carried out. Um, and actually, it surprises me how often that that sentence gets forgotten, um, as people sort of focus on the on the idea of redemption and on Raskolnikov finally finding God. By the way, when he picks up the Bible, he doesn't also he doesn't open it, which is also kind of a, an ambiguous mo moment there too, right? That on the one hand, yes, the Bible is there, but he doesn't actually open it. So. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, like all, like with all of Dostoevsky's um, sort of epiphanic moments, like you see also in the Brothers Karamazov, and in various other places, um, he he always holds something back, right? It's supposed to be a moment of mystery that we that cannot really be truly conveyed, um, sort of in an in a novelistic in a secular genre like the novel, right? So. That is interesting because that was something that I kind of I thought about. It's actually to your point about leaving out the ambiguous elements when I was putting together my notes in the summary because that the way that section lead, leads off, at least in the the text, and of course maybe this is subject to translations you're using, but it kind mm -hmm. of like like you said, it opens up and says he did not open it now, but one thought passed through his mind: Can her convictions not be mined down? Her feelings, her aspirations, at least dot dot dot. Mm -hmm. And that's like that's not like that is kind of like almost like I. I guess. Yeah. I mean, what else do I have? Uh, yes. I feel good. So, and Sonia feels good. So maybe this is it. <laughs> yeah. And the dot, dot, dot is also, you know, always an interesting moment when there's some kind of gap. Yeah. Cause I guess that that's like, I guess that's his, his last, technically his last thought in the book of, I guess this is it to your point of this ambiguity leading to the future of maybe he's still going to be not fully engaging with this kind of, yes. um, yeah. 
servility of like godliness that you see in, in Sonia. Yeah, and no, another thing I was going to say is um, it, we, from the very beginning, were encouraged to um, compare Raskolnikov's trajectory with that, that of Razumikhin. And as you were reading through your summary, it reminded me that Razumikhin goes back to university at the end, goes back to his studies. And that's the perfect end for a Bildungsroman hero, right? And it's Razumikhin. The Bildungsroman is a really important genre for, for all of Dostoevsky's novels, for the 19th century novel in general, but particularly for um, Crime and Punishment. Um, and of course, that's the genre of the of the kind of hero coming to experience in the world, right? Coming to know about himself or herself um, in the world. And um, it's kind of living in the world instead of going to university, right? The Bildungsroman hero or heroine is usually a student age, but, you know, having their education in the world instead of at school. And often the successful end of the Bildungsroman is that the student can go back to school, right? And so that's what happens to Razumikhin. But Raskolnikov has never really been that kind of um conventional western um western generic um novelistic hero right he's something else so he's not going back to school right he's uh, he's not going back to do his translations you know he's not going back to any of those options that were offered earlier on in the novel instead he's gonna you know him and sonia are gonna go off and you know do fulfill some great future deed right they're gonna fulfill some kind of destiny right so um so it's interesting there how the end of the novel cannot just um and it's and it's Razumikhin who gets the marriage plot right it's him who gets the kind of successful marriage to to dunya and um the successful end to his bildungsroman and it's raskolnikov who's off in siberia um about to begin some other kind of new story. And of course, Dostoevsky is struggling all the time with, um, mm. he, he, he recognizes his debts to the 19th century Western novel, right? To the European mm. novel, secular novel. But at the same time, he's looking for something else, right? Which is why um, Lukacs claimed that Dostoevsky didn't write novels, right? That he was pointing towards some kind of mo modern epic, in fact, right? And you see that at the end of all of the novels, right? You see at the end of Crime and Punishment, you see at the end of The Brothers Karamazov. And part of what Dostoevsky is doing is he's kind of refusing to to kind of tie it all up, right? He's leaving the end open. He's pointing out into the future, that's really interesting you bring that up. I, I, do you mind? I want to pose something to you. And this is like a weird tension that as you're talking kind of comes to mind. And it's probably a tension born of like me, me not overlooking something. But we have uh, obviously Raskolnikov storyline of, of going through, quote unquote, great man ideas coming to the end is kind of we we're like talking about this evolution of it of like, OK, maybe that's actually kind of a virus where like it, it kind of blocks us off from other people. And maybe we need to take this and like reform it in some way. Yep. That almost seems to be at tension with Razumikin as a person who is someone who is kind of like a like a like a Slavic Superman where he can be everything at once. He can be funny. He can be boisterous. He can be the life of the party, but he can also be totally sober, a great student, you know, good worker, all that kind of stuff. And he at your point almost has like this kind of uh, typical Western story arc where he's a student, then he drops out to go pr pursue industry and go make you know money in his own way. Yeah. And then he, yeah, come, he gets this marriage plot and he ends by going back to school. And he's like someone that's never infected with this like great man theory. He's, he's one of the people who simply under this idea exists to replicate himself. But, but like in this final, you know, in, in this final way or like Rosen and almost everyone else who's not, not infected, infected quote unquote, the idea of like, of I hold the truth 
they almost seem like they would be the ones who would be pushing life onward like like the almost almost as if the great mass of humanity that simply replicates itself then becomes that few yes yeah well i think um you know in a sense if dostoevsky was another writer then that would that would be the case right but um but you know he is after all a former convict himself he is you know he never um really buys into the kind of conventional ending right um mm -hmm. uh, he you know is this strange becomes this strange conservative but who's also a kind of radical messianic nationalist right and but who's also kind of has sympathies later on in life towards the uh, populists who are also um, uh, assassinating people left, right and center, right? His politics are so confused and complex and really not reducible down to anything. And you already see that in the 1860s in Crime and Punishment, you, in the ambiguity of the ending, I think. Okay, that, that makes sense. That that kind of, I guess, resolves if I not resolving it in a sense. I, yeah, I don't know if that I'm makes afraid, sense. But I'm yeah. afraid I'm a, bit, I'm a big fan of that with Dostoevsky. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think my students always grown because you know i like i re always refuse to resolve anything because you know because yeah. they're radically open-ended his novels so yeah yeah it almost be on dostoevsky and to say well this is the final note on it. yeah <laughs> this is yeah. how you're understanding yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid at the end of this episode, you're going to have to point out towards the future and, you know, say that, you know, what, what do you all think of it? Well, that's a story for another time that will be told, you know, <laughs> when everybody's ready. Yeah, that's funny, which is, yeah, which is where it leaves us. It's like, well, there's obviously, I mean, maybe that's like, um, I think um, Dr. Shirley pointed this out last year, uh, last year. <laughs> It, it's, we've been doing this, this series for a long time, not quite that long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last ep episode that kind of, um, if you kind of make a generalization, the Russian novel is not about like like American novels, like The Great Marriage or Leading Up to no. That. It's about waking up the day after and realizing you still have to live your life. Exactly. And this kind of ends, yeah, it ends on, there is still life to be lived despite all of this. There's still life to live. And maybe even the great thing was not even covered in this story. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and even if there is a magic marriage plot, it's usually about something else, right? It's just yeah. kind of a metaphor for something else. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not about property. <laughs> it's not about property and it's not about marriage. It's a sim mm. symbol of something else. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder, though, on this last line that we're talking about, I've been mulling this over because I, I don't know how I feel about it in the... Chapter one of the dialogue, the narrator obviously is just to me. It's it's a much more impartial tone. Part two is yeah. back inside of his head, and so this line that says he would have to pay dear, dearly for it or this this great deed. I'm wondering, is this then his own projection into the narrator? That's what I'm. Yes, no, and I think, yeah. and it's Porfiry's, and it's also Porfiry's voice which is in being projected here too. So right. I think, I mean, um, I I'm not sure whether one could really resolve that question as to whether i, I see what i so, see what it's you interesting mean. yeah it is but i think i also do think that that line um is just in such a strategically significant position um at the end of a paragraph that's talking about sonia and um you know it's just so um whatever it's saying whether we're talking about raskolnikov not having whatever it's saying is not it's clear that raskolnikov has not taken sonia's path of um you know of abject humiliation in his conversion and you know so yeah i do okay well i'll ask you about like the conversion i feel like i want to talk more about that because i sure. um am wondering do you buy the conversion is that the question to even ask about the conversion 
what do you look for when you read through this kind of part it's a lot there, i mean there's so much there so. yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna give a a kind of literary scholar cop-out uh, response <laughs> to that and say um what's interesting about the conversion is what it means narratively right i don't um the question in a way it doesn't matter whether or not i buy the conversion that's of course not mm -hmm. really how i speak to my undergraduates because i mean of course <laughs> it's a of course it's a very uh, valid question as to whether a reader you know really believes it or not um i i, I but i what I, what i do think is that the there are these three moments in the text right there's the moment of the crime there's the moment of the confession and there's the moment of the conversion and each of these moments is kind of radically open and it could mean Mean, it could mean the end of the story, right? So the idea is that, you know, at one point Raskolnikov sees, you know, the crime has kind of, um, uh, one of his motives, right, is that the crime will resolve the question as to whether or whether he's a great man or whether he's a louse, right? And of course, then there's the other uh, side of it, which is by already already by asking that question, it shows that he's a louse, right? And he sort of recognizes that afterwards. So the idea that the the crime, but then there's the other interpretation of the crime as um, the the beginning interpretation of, of the crime as being um, as enabling him to save the world, right? To take the money and to kind of create possibilities for his family and for the poor of St. Petersburg and so on. So just as the crime, I think, is this open moment that can either mean the end of the story or the beginning of a new story, the same is true of the con of the confession, right? That depending on how he how he confesses, that could either be the end of the story. So he if he confesses, he's going to be punished. It maybe it's the end of his kind of possibility of being a great man, uh, or maybe it's the beginning of the possibility of him being a good Christian, right? And then there's the conversion, and the same thing happens, right? That the conversion also could be either the end of his story, right? The end. Of of his of his great man idea his recognition of sort of his humility before god or it could be the beginning of a new story which is what that kind of um penultimate uh, paragraph perhaps seems to imply so i think what what's interesting not so much is the question of whether you actually buy the conversion but what it means in terms of kind of the structure of the story yeah i've been I was kind of thinking about this as well because I just happened to be reading some some poetry for class this week, not related to the podcast, but as I was kind of rereading through the epilogue, I was reading through reading some Zhukovsky for class, um, and he has this poem, Voice from the Beyond or Voice from Your World, and it's but <laughs> not a Zhukovsky podcast, so I won't get too much into it, but um, these ideas of unifying in one world uh, this like otherworldly force and your kind of earthly force yeah. um, is was interesting um, in reading through the epilogue. Um, and then some of his other poetry, a lot of the signature moves are describing something that is undescribable and kind of coming to this moment of, well, I can't exactly describe it, but I know that it's there. And there's like this very similar feeling when I'm reading through the epilogue in which it's not really intended to answer the question, but it is posing it in a way that we can recognize and acknowledge that there has to be something more. Yes. And this is like interesting that I feel that he's drawing on the source actually pretty heavily, um, at least for the epilogue. I don't know. I'd have to reread it and kind of <laughs> parse it out. But Yeah. And I think um, every... Um, 
the endings of all of these novels, Crime and Punishment, also the Brothers Karamazov, also point towards um, the very interesting late story of his dream of a ridiculous man, which is, of course, the story of a man who kind of sees the truth. He um, has this kind of vision of paradise and his and he corrupts that paradise in that vision and at the end he says i've seen the truth but everybody thinks he's a ridiculous man right everybody thinks he's crazy and he can't can convey that truth to anybody um and you know that idea of kind of having seen the truth but being unable to convey it i mean for dostoevsky as a kind of visionary who's working with a secular genre the 19th century novel you know we we have that everywhere in a sense right yeah, just that conflict. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of topics today. So just before we start to wrap up, just wanted to check in, see if there's any last things we wanted to cover. Um, I feel like we, I think we talked about most of the things that I wanted to, um, wanted to kind of explain or discuss. Yeah, cool. Definitely. In that case, um, Unless you, there's, you kind of come back around to your question when I finish it up on that. No, I'm I, I I'm good. I just it's given me a lot to think about. Is all. <laughs> um, well, I guess that that's good for this story because we, um, as as we're finishing up this series, we're not really finishing it up in the sense that I hope you keep thinking about it because that's kind of as we've been discussing today what it's all about to not put a final note and be like, okay, here's where we stop. Here's the story over and. These are the ideas to take away, but rather, here's where we can start thinking about. Here's where we can instead of here's where we can almost stop thinking falsely and start thinking as maybe Dostoevsky would have you walk away as a reader, start thinking more clear eyed, clear eyedly. Don't know if that's the correct word I'm looking for. I'm thinking more clearly definitely, definitely about what, no, clear I am the arbiter of words. Yeah, uh, clear eyedly about how we approach the near future. Okay. Well, in that case. Um, Kate, thank you so much for helping us wrap this up. We genuinely had no idea how we were going <laughs> to be able to pull yeah, this, this together. I hope it was all right. <laughs> and I didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. Thank you. It was, it, it, honestly, there's like a lot of things in my mind that was coming to the end. I was like, I don't know how to address this. I don't know how to even ask these questions. So this conversation has been good for both answering questions and even understanding how to formulate them about this novel yeah it's i i was very happy to have the chance a few years ago to work on that um uh epilogue special issue of um canadian slavonic papers because i had in the first the first few times i taught this novel um it was really hard for me to you know know what to do about the epilogue and how like how to close the 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 classes yeah. on the crime and punishment but i feel like now and now, now I have more of a handle on it and like how to how to how to close it without closing it. Right. I like that. Close it without closing it. The ending is about as tight as the security in the Siberian prison where they just let people wander. That Reddit bad take is like uh, <laughs> I, really quite a bad take. I guess you can do it with anything now. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, maybe we maybe we should re reduce all of our analyses from 
an hour of conversation down to just a couple sentences and that'll help (laughs) (laughs) get things across. (laughs) My favorite is when I, I it's happened to me a couple of times that students Mm. have written papers on crime and punishment and it it became quite clear that they hadn't actually finished reading the novel. And that that the, uh, yeah, I think the one particular one I remember was on the, um, the, the motive and, Mm. you know, they had obviously not read past the first hundred pages or so because the motive (laughs) was the motive as it emerges in, part one of the novel before they'd got to part three so the great man theory didn't even make an appearance so (laughs) (laughs) it kind of reminds me i don't know um if if either of you ever watched true detective but the massive fandom who if you've never been familiar it's they've got this one character who's you know dark and gritty and everyone loves him and of course at the end he strays away from all of that and his point is that maybe life isn't so bad in a like yeah, uh, yeah. much much less intelligent well, not intelligent but like much less broad reaching point but yeah the entire fandom talking about it is like man isn't this guy cool he's so nihilistic <laughs> shying <laughs> yeah. away from i don't know if you watch the rest of the show but that's kind of the whole thing is about how maybe we shouldn't be like that <laughs> yeah 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 i'm just not sure how you can finish the book and the first word that you write when you go to compose your thoughts is Aww. <laughs> <laughs> so I was cursed by Reddit today. Yeah, I was doing that. I I I I'm impressed that you decided that thought. I'm gonna prep for this, and at any point, we're like, I think I'll go on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm gonna. I, I yeah, I had a few things to talk about, and then I was like, I'll just look on Reddit because I like to be amused and or angry. <laughs> but I have to say, I I appreciate the having a drink in hand while talking about um. The text approach definitely it's the way to go it helps I'm, not, a lot. I'm not sure i'll i'll be able to bring it into my lectures <laughs> but uh <laughs> probably not you know i I've, I've found through the through the many episodes although having the drink is much nicer having you know a sparkling water or something yeah is, you is can also substitute. pretend pretend yeah yeah exactly exactly oh well but of course the drink is there's no substitute for the drink if it's something like part six and you're like right need right. to drink three more beers before i describe this next section yeah Hold yeah on. yes yeah well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been hugely informative and enjoyable. Welcome. Thanks for inviting Definitely. me. Take care. Bye. 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 All right. Wait, everyone. <gasps> oh, quick breath. Okay. We've made it through Crime and Punishment, all six parts and the epilogue. So if you've been here for all the episodes, clap on the back because this has been this has been a long one. Almost. Just, as... just, just, just beautiful. Just beautiful. Just beautiful. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. And if you're along with us, extra clap on the back. Use your other hand, maybe. So you get clap clap because you've made it through crime and, and if you bought that book through our affiliate link oh my goodness <laughs> just a little golf clap for you yeah there you go all around just a little one uh this has been really good and uh we are just thankful for all of you for sticking around for this long long thing um and we're gonna give everyone a little bit a, ch- a chance to breathe a chance to breathe for the next couple of months before we get into our our next series um, we've got our eyes towards turned towards some bigger works, but you'll hear more about that in the coming in the coming episodes. Uh, but for now, Matt, after all this time, after the last seven episodes, what could we possibly dismount from the Great Crime and Punishment onto? We're talking about feet, Cameron. <laughs> We're doing it. There are feet in Crime and Punishment too. That's that's not a new theme. Nope. But there's going to be so much more feet in the next book. Oh, perfect. In verse that we read. <laughs> before we keep talking about feet as you know we're we're gonna do if we don't move on what 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 are we reading on the bi-weekly friday footcast um (laughs) we're gonna be reading (laughs) we're going to finally be reading some pushkin on the podcast well 
not some Pushkin, the Pushkin. We're going to be reading Eugene Onyegin. This is going to be our next kind of, it'll be a short series. We're going to do it over three parts. Uh, we're going to do chapters one, two, and three in the first episode, four, five, six in the uh, second episode, seven, eight, and the extra chapters in the third episode. So it's going to be a good one. Uh, I love Eugene Onyegin, so I think it's going to be a little, a little bit of a, a, a breather, at least for me, from Crime and Punishment, which was more more serious yeah um this one is gonna be fun i'm looking forward to it i have been ever since we like you may know if you listen to our our episodes or was it a singular episode i don't remember it might have been singular episode on the captain's daughter um i i've not i'm more of a modern reader so i have not don't have a huge background in pushkin but honestly the captain's daughter has been probably one of my favorite things we've read for this po- read for this podcast so i'm really excited to get into like pushkin's main thing um i think i'm i'm really looking forward to it yeah it's gonna be good and as always if you plan on reading along with us please pick up the book inverse on our website we're gonna have affiliate links up there so feel free to check it out if you want to read along with us yeah absolutely and uh this is one that's worth i mean they're all ones worth reading along with but i mean hey it's eugene O'Neill. Oh, oh god my 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 russian and english <laughs> pronunciations are clashing in my head it's eugene <laughs> Hmm. It's Evgeny Onyegin. I can't. I've been saying that one for too long. Um, it's 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 Onyegin. <laughs> it's Eugene, Oregon. Um. <laughs> it's Eugene's road to Oregon. <laughs> Little known fact: uh, Evgeny Onyegin is actually all about Pushkin's quest to get uh, Eugene, Oregon, for the really good uh, used <laughs> jean jacket store they have there. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Which is what we'll be reading about starting next episode. Yes, yep. That and feet. It really kind of makes that kind of makes him sound like more of a, um, a Hunter S. Thompson writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. And if you think about it, <laughs> and you shouldn't, don't think about it. Yeah. God, have fun editing down this. <laughs> I might not. I might just leave it as is. <laughs> oh boy, the cursed outro <laughs> that no one's listening to at this point. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Before we let you go, we do want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got. Jeff, Madeline, and Janice, Dan, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Alex, Larkin, uh, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Drew, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, and Julie. So many, so many beautiful patrons. Thank you so much. Uh, and if you are interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, uh, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. As you know, podcasting is not free because we spend money on a lot of high quality things for you dear listener like our sweet sweet merch on our website uh and as you also should know by now grad school does not pay very well even though i keep asking them for a raise they tell me no go back to your podcast (laughs) go it's very rude (laughs) that's it okay (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> i'm leaving the silence in um good <laughs> the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com or Maybe we should add this. We are 52 episodes in. You can also follow us on Twitter 
at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast. Uh, Twitter is a hell site, um, but it's our hell site, so go look for Matt's. We're there to make it just a little bit more hellish. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say go go. <laughs> please go check out Matt's very earnest attempts to make it a worse website. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, yeah. That that's all we got for our socials. You'll hear from us again soon, if you want. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.